there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. And if you're outside working in the garden or maybe walking the dog or biking to class, you are in exactly the right place because my next guest is the executive director of a nonprofit that works to make our world a better place by advancing social equity, economic opportunity, and environmental well-being, specifically on the West Coast of the United States. The rest of the United States doesn't matter. No, I'm just kidding. But before <laughs> I introduce you to one of the fittest guys I know, Jeremy Barnacle, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's the weekly newsletter we send out bright and early on Monday mornings to give you a sneak peek of the episodes we're going to be dropping that week. So please head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four coffee.org and sign up. And while you're there, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do. The buttons are all there and make sure to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We would greatly appreciate it. Now, my expressive espresso lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my talented next guest is Jeremy Barnacle, who is director of the nonprofit EcoTrust. In fact, he's the executive director and has been there since 2016. Jeremy has spent more than two decades working at the intersection of policy, philanthropy, and social change. And we both know one another because we worked at the global humanitarian organization Mercy Corps, where Jeremy spent 11 years in a variety of positions where he helped guide the organization's global strategy and position Mercy Corps as one of the most respected humanitarian organizations in the world. Prior to Mercy Corps, Jeremy worked for the State Department, for a U.S. congressman, for several consulting firms, and as a Peace Corps volunteer. Jeremy, welcome to Time for Coffee. I almost don't need to ask you this because I know you start throwing back the espresso shots at the crack of dawn, but are you caffeinated and ready to go? Fully caffeinated and ready to roll. It's great to be with you, Andrea. Awesome. Well, it is great to have you here. And I thought maybe we could kick off our conversation by having you share with our listeners what EcoTrust mission is, because you do a lot, and where you work, both in terms of geography, but also in terms of some of the sectors. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. So EcoTrust's mission is to inspire fresh thinking that creates economic opportunity, environmental well-being, and social equity. So true triple bottom line, it's not an environmental organization. We look at it like you're not going to make durable progress on any of those things unless you address all of those things. Um, so it really is all three. We work from Alaska to Northern California. So it includes California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and Alaska. We generally work in natural resource-related sectors, so forestry, fisheries, food and agriculture. But we also have a built environment program around green building, which is really important. And we do a lot in social finance. So really interesting, connects urban and rural red counties and blue cities, you know, people from across the spectrum, business, science, policy, storytelling. It really is an exciting organization. 
Fantastic. And speaking of built environment, the built environment that you're in right now is your office in Portland, Oregon, and you don't have many private offices. And so our listeners may be hearing the sound of some very young people working at Ecotrust these days. Sounded like some kids, but maybe just some adults with very high voices. In our building, we've got a huge atrium. We're on the second floor. On the first floor, there are a couple of restaurants and kids are coming in for lunch. Nice. That is awesome. I was almost wondering if you were going to say you have a daycare there, but you know, I know that that has been raised. I am sure it (laughs) has. So Jeremy, you are the executive director, which means you are the big boss at Ecotrust. Mm -hmm. So I guess my next question is, how does it feel to be king? I'm kidding. Oh, I'm kidding. I'm yeah. kidding. What I wanted to say is, what are your responsibilities and what is a typical day or maybe a typical week like for you? Sure. Well, the responsibilities, there are a lot, but I would say overall vision, strategy, what are we trying to get done? Do we have what we need to do to get there? You know, so obviously that encompasses all of our programmatic and investment work. And then there's the more operational stuff like finance and HR and IT. And then, of course, there are the development and communications functions to make sure that we're raising money and telling the story properly. I manage a board, right? My bosses are a board of directors. And so it's a central part of my job to work with them. I'm actually on the board now. So that's the broad range of stuff, but it's also kind of, you know, sometimes cheerleader in chief, often the primary spokesperson and thought leader, frontline fundraiser, Mr. Fix-It, you know, when necessary. So it's it's pretty all-encompassing. We've got about 60-some people in operating budget this year, $14.5 million, just to give you a sense of magnitude. Most of the people are based in Portland, but we've got folks from Alaska to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And what about a typical day or a typical week as you juggle all of those different responsibilities, which could in and of themselves be a full-time job? Yeah, for sure. Well, I'll give you roughly the last week as some examples. On Saturday, we did the grand opening of a major new real estate development we're doing in Portland. It's essentially a huge food hub. It's a two-block campus in the middle of the city. And we had an enormous public opening of that. On Saturday, about 1,800 people. We had you know, our local member of Congress on stage. I was on stage. We had chefs doing demonstrations and music and wine and beer and kids and big fires. And all so, under control, right? Fires oh, everything under, control. under control. Yeah. Although always on the edge of chaos. That's kind of how we operate. But you know, really big public things like that to, you know, this morning I was essentially interviewing people for an opening we have for our chief financial officer. And then, you know, I'll spend time calling and visiting with donors. I spend time meeting with my own leadership team, talking about program strategy and checking in on our own impact with our head of investments, talking about different strategies we might want to pursue there. From that to what are we going to do in the all staff meeting on Monday? It's just a huge range. Absolutely. Jeremy, I know that you just said that Ecotrust is not an environmental nonprofit in and of itself. But how are environmentally oriented nonprofits faring these days? And by these days, I mean during the Trump administration. And I should say we're 
doing this interview right now at the beginning of March. And it's been, I think, a few weeks maybe since the Washington Post reported that the Trump administration plans to convene a group of federal scientists to re-examine the government's scientific conclusions regarding climate change and the role that humans have played in contributing to it. Have actions like these helped or hurt fundraising efforts? Some of the big national environmental organizations I know have really seen the Trump bump in fundraising because he has given them a pretty concrete threat to fundraise against. And so I think, you know, those guys have seen that. I think the opportunity for a regional nonprofit like us that works on climate change and reaches across a bunch of different levers, whether it's business or science or policy, there's a neat opportunity in all that darkness that there's such a feeling of stagnation or moving backwards at the federal level, that there's a ton of energy at the city, state, and regional level, and frankly, among companies, to really take the leadership or fill that leadership vacuum around global climate change. And so an organization like ours is especially relevant now because we want to keep moving at the regional level, even while things are really stuck at the national level. And, you know, I mean, the Oregon legislature is about to pass a climate bill, which will be a really big deal. California's already got a price on carbon. And our hope and expectation is that the Pacific coasts of North America really continues to lead the way in trying to solve this. Yeah, we need you. (laughs) We need you out there leading the charge. Yeah, well, and hopefully the situation at the federal level will change. And when that does, we will have had some momentum because we never really stopped out here. Right. And we mean by change for the better and not roll back the kinds of scientific findings that have been pretty conclusive that climate change exists and that humans are contributing to it. (laughs) Yeah, I was just reading this piece, I think it was in the journal Science, about how the level of scientific certainty around human-caused climate change is comparable to the strength of scientific consensus around smoking being harmful for your health. So you compare those two things and you try to consider that there is even a debate about this at the federal level is completely absurd. I totally agree. So Jeremy, you mentioned the CFO position that you're hiring for right now. Ecotrust is approaching its 30th anniversary in just a couple of years. How do you think its mission has evolved since it was founded in 1991? And what do you think that means for the kinds of people you hire to come work with you? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I would say, you know, when you look at the region that we work in, not unlike a lot of other regions of the US and frankly, the world, it is rapidly urbanizing. And so if you want to bring about change around these triple bottom line issues, you really need to focus on urban areas too. You can't just look at, okay, well, what are we doing on farms? What are we doing in forests? You have to look at consumer patterns in cities. You need to look at the jobs that people have. You need to look at the access that people have to locally produced, healthy, sustainable food. And so I would say that there's more of an urban focus for people who care about these issues than there might have been 30 years ago. That is so interesting. And is that why Ecotrust has been working not only on issues related to the ocean, but local food? And I read your website, you're talking about the Northwest Food Buyers Alliance and working with about 80 institutions that serve more than 200,000 meals a day to purchase more local food. So yes, and the way that we see it is something like agriculture 
is a huge contributor to climate change and other environmental degradation if it's done in the sort of traditional, conventional commodity style. And so we looked at it and said, is there a way that we could support the medium-sized food producers who are producing their food closer to home and in a more regenerative kind of climate-smart way? And one of the things that we found is that they were ready to grow, but they didn't have access to those big institutional buyers, right? The public school systems or the universities or corporate campuses or hospital systems or whatever. And so we started to organize the buyers on one side, and that's the Northwest Food Buyers Alliance, and then the producers on the other side, and essentially play a broker role to help both sides get more of what they want. So it's great for kids, you know, particularly because such a big emphasis is on school systems, but great for kids, great for farming communities, and good for the planet. I love that. And I couldn't help but think about the work that you and I were supporting in the roles that we had at Mercy Corps, the work that our colleagues, or our former colleagues at Mercy Corps are doing around the world, identifying the problem and then working with communities themselves to identify a solution and getting that solution to focus on the root cause of the problem. And I have to say, Jeremy, my own ignorance before I was reading on Ecotrust website, is that these same kinds of interventions are needed in the United States too. Yeah. I mean, that was a big part of the driver for me in coming from Mercy Corps to Ecotrust is that here I'd been just like you, we were supporting our colleagues around the world, doing this often in, in communities that were not their own. And there's really something different about digging in at home. I and mean, this is the place where my kids were born. This is the place where my family has really grown. This is the place that's become home. And there's a real difference. I just think for your listeners, as they're considering their own career paths, that starting at home and the accountability that comes with that, it's a really important thing to try. I mean, I can't go to a block party, a kid's soccer game, parents' night at school or whatever without somebody saying, hey, I saw what you guys are doing on salmon habitat or protecting this piece of land or that piece of land or growing the regional food system or whatever. Everyone's got a point of view because these aren't distant problems. They're things that are right in our backyard all the time. And that's been really fascinating. Another sector that Ecotrust works in is climate smart forestry. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing and how it relates to the communities that you're supporting? Sure. Well, I'm sure most, if not all of your listeners would agree that global warming is a really serious problem. And the conversation about how to deal with that generally gets dominated by the conversion to you know, renewable energy, reducing emissions from transportation and all that, all of which is critically important. We've got to do a lot. But a big part of the climate solution in the long run is going to be around using our natural assets, things that can draw greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. And that's forestry, largely, you know, forestry and agriculture. And so here in the Pacific Northwest, we have these incredible forests that have really kind of unmatched ability to serve that kind of lungs of the earth role. Okay. And so a lot of our work here is saying, okay, it's not enough for us to just say to rural communities, timber communities, you can't cut down trees. You know, you just can't cut down trees. I mean, that's been a livelihood for people in this part of the world for decades and decades. And we're not in the business of telling people not to do that. But we do believe that there's a way to do it 
where you can cut more selectively. You can maintain some of the older trees and still get tons of carbon benefit, which is really important for climate purposes, but also maintain rural livelihoods and have people earn a dignified living in the place that they're from. And so we do everything from the science, kind of at the front end of saying, well, gee, you know, if you manage your forest in this way, these will be the outcomes in terms of climate and how much money you can make, et cetera. So everything from the front end science of that to informing policymakers, because that's always an issue out here, is what are the regulations going to be around forest management? And then there's a business component. We started a fund manager, gosh, now 10, 12 years ago, that buys and manages forest land with our own money, but primarily with other investors' money. We have 100,000 acres under management now, and that is a business. I mean, we have a fiduciary responsibility to our investors to provide a triple bottom line. So it's ecological, sustainable forestry, but it also turns a profit. And the real goal there is that that works, but also that we model to other regions of the world, like, hey, this is a business model whereby we can have livelihoods and make money and have the wood products that we want and need, and we can uh, manage the natural assets responsibly. That is so interesting. And Jeremy, the next question I want to ask you has to do with maybe some of the kinds of people that you are hiring at Ecotrust. In the case of the natural resources space, I know you have a natural resources data scientist. You obviously have program officers and program associates. But for those young listeners who are saying, gosh, this sounds so fascinating. I would love to work for Ecotrust. Obviously, you don't have tons of jobs. In fact, right now, I think you only have three jobs open, including the CFO position. Are there other organizations that are working the way Ecotrust is right now in the Pacific Northwest elsewhere in the country? that you could perhaps share with our listeners? I think an interesting place to look right now is the Nature Conservancy. And I say that because the Conservancy is international. They have a big national outfit, but then each state has one. And they increasingly, I think the legacy of the Nature Conservancy was land conservation. So they would do big land deals to protect them. But they've got way, way more involved in science policy and even business now. And I would start there just because like a Mercy Corps, they tend to have more jobs available. I'm sure you emphasize this with your younger listeners all the time, but I mean, internships are the currency. I mean, that is the gateway to getting into a lot of these social change organizations. Definitely. That is a great point that we can't emphasize enough. For those listeners who listening to you now would think that you have been living and breathing and eating the world of sustainability and climate change and whatnot for the last 20 plus years. You haven't, Jeremy. (laughs) You were not, and I don't know if you would consider yourself at this stage to be an expert in this space. In fact, you got your BA in public policy in Spanish from Vanderbilt University. Before I ask you about that, how did you get up to speed? You've been at Ecotrust for three years. You're juggling tons of different responsibilities. Can you just share very quickly the work that you do outside of the office to kind of bone up on all this material? That is a great question because I still feel like a newbie 
honestly. I mean, I'll sit just by virtue of my role. I mean, I'll find myself sitting around a table with a bunch of forestry experts or a bunch of fish habitat experts or social finance people or green workforce folks. And I'm never an expert, a content expert in any of the things that they're discussing. And so there's a certain exercise in humility that just says, okay, well, my value add here is to organize stuff and to advocate for stuff and to help clarify a strategy, motivate people not to be a soil scientist, right? Let the soil scientists do her job. That said, I have a whole reading list, basically. When I started the job, I really intentionally went out to my team and beyond and said, who do I need to talk to and what do I need to read in order to get smart on these issues? And I missed feeling like more of an expert than I did at Mercy Corps, say, around kind of conflicts and humanitarian issues. I had a functional job there, but that drew on a content expertise that I felt really comfortable with. This has been a lot harder, but fascinating. I mean, I can't imagine a more pressing issue to work on than climate change. And so I have no motivation problems, let's say. (laughs) But I think it's important to share with our young listeners that one of the things that helps you grow in your life and in your career is constantly pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. Nobody forced you to leave Mercy Corps. You did that on your own volition because you wanted to grow and you wanted to try something new. And I'm sure you had other reasons. And you deliberately put yourself in a role in which you were reaching and stretching and probably feeling, you know, uncomfortable at times. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that because I don't know that I've always got the best kind of strategic foresight, but In this transition, I was really intentional. I looked at it and I said, look, just the nature of work is changing. And there's a premium, an increasing premium on nimbleness and adaptability. And yeah, I could have stayed at Mercy Corps or in that business for the rest of my career and been fairly comfortable. But that felt a little bit fragile to me. And I wanted to build up my own resilience. And I just said, you know, I'm going to try something really different and it's going to be hard, but it's important to me that I learn how to learn, right? I stay nimble and knowing how to learn. And I did it. And it actually has been even harder than I would have thought. But it's also been really powerful. I mean, honestly, I think for young people trying to figure out what they want to do early career, I can't emphasize enough, like trying to stay nimble. Absolutely. And also recognizing that If you want to grow in your life, it's going to take courage and you're going to be taking risks and you may fall down. You may screw up and you just have to pick yourself up and keep moving forward. Jeremy, I want to flash back to when you were at Vanderbilt and you were majoring in public policy in Spanish. And I just curious, did you know what you were going to do with that degree when you graduated? I did not. Because what's not reflected in that degree is what I was really passionate about uh, was media. I was an editor of Vanderbilt's newspaper. I had interned at CNN over the summer. In fact, I was thinking, Andrea, that I was probably an intern when you were like a cub reporter at CNN back in the day. It would have been like 93. Oh, my God. That was the year I started at there you CNN. Go. Look at that. Now you are making me feel old, Jeremy. (laughs) Sorry, I don't. Yeah, I don't. We were probably a couple of years apart. But that was actually my real passion at the time. And my father gave me the good advice to say, well, look, study the hard stuff that you would want to cover as a journalist. And that was public policy. And then realized, frankly, how hard a career, as you know, it's just a tough career and it's changed. That industry has changed massively ever since. So I'm glad not to have stuck with that because I think it just would have been a tricky time 
But no, I mean, I knew that I wanted to be involved in public service. I figured that would be through media or government or, you know, some sort of foreign policy, community service, something in that. I knew I didn't want to be an accountant or a chemist. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, me neither. Jeremy, in preparing for this interview, I was reminded again of the multiple industries that you have been in and the various hats that you have worn. Do you think that your career was something that has been a series of methodically curated steps or has it been sort of like flying by the seat of your pants? Definitely more the latter than the former. I mean, particularly I've been in this job three years and then was at Mercy Corps for 11. And those have been fairly kind of stable, thoughtful years. But the early years, I looked at it and I said, okay, I'm going to do the very best job I possibly can at the job that I have right now. And I'm always going to keep my eyes open for other things that I think I would learn from and would look good in terms of background. And I really feel blessed. I mean, without kind of going back over the series of jobs I had, I mean, I got to run a congressional campaign when I was 26, 25, 26. Um, You know, we won. I went to work on the Hill. You know, I got to go work for the State Department in Bosnia. Again, I was probably 27. It wasn't long thereafter. And I just kept going. You know, I just looked for great opportunities and took them. And I think I was really lucky because I didn't have any debt. I didn't have student loans. And I was mostly unattached. And then the wonderful woman who became my wife was similarly adventurous. And so we moved around a lot. And that was a real privilege. I mean, I want to acknowledge that, that I come from a background privileged enough that I had a lot of flexibility. But then given what it was I had, I really reached for stuff too. So Jeremy, I just have a couple of questions left. And one of them has to do with whether there has been a time in your professional life when you struggled. Maybe it was the early part of your career. Maybe it was in the middle. Maybe you failed in something. And I certainly have. I've had more than I can count in terms of screw-ups. But if there is one story that you could share with us, and more importantly, how you recovered and maybe a lesson you learned in the process. Oh, gosh. I mean, there are failures of such different magnitudes, right? I mean, they're the things that seemed huge at the time. Like once when I was a press officer in Bosnia, it was doing a press conference and essentially felt bad that I hadn't really given them any news. And so I let slip something that really was supposed to not get announced for another couple of weeks was highly sensitive and just required a bit of a diplomatic scramble for people way above my pay grade. That was very uncomfortable. I mean, it was just like spokesperson 101, like don't make your boss's jobs harder. So that was bad. You know, that was just your kind of regular stewing and processing and looking for mentors to reassure me that I wasn't a complete idiot, things like that. I would say at the broader level, things I would regret were taking jobs for the wrong reasons, right? I mean, either taking a job because it seemed like a good status thing or taking a job because I felt desperate, like I really needed to find something when I probably didn't have to be quite like that. And and not having the self-awareness to say, you know what, this isn't it. Like I should bail out of this. I feel like I may have stuck with a couple of jobs longer than I should have. Yeah, that is a great point. And for those who have the luxury of time or maybe resources to take a little time and be thoughtful about the jobs that you're going to take in your life or not be afraid to pull the ripcord and get out if you're in a situation, even if you haven't been there a year, which for so many of us grew up with the, oh, you need to mark a year before you can look for the next job. Maybe just call a spade a spade and get out. Jeremy, final time for coffee question. 
if you could go back to college, back to Vanderbilt and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Go to med school. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. Honestly, you and I are people who have been in the humanitarian business for a long time. And I just always come back to this idea that if you're trained to heal bodies, you are useful pretty much in any time, any culture, in a variety of reasons. And if you're someone who cares about being useful, honestly, it's hard to be more useful than that. And so it's not about the money or the prestige or whatever. For me, it's like put in the hard work and learn something that essential and that valuable to the rest of humanity. You know, I laughed because I thought you were joking, but you're serious. I tell people that all the time. Yeah, I don't say that out of a sense of regret for what I do. But yeah, I think about that. If I really had it to do over again, knowing what I know now, I think that's what I want to do. Not for research purposes. I'd want to be a practicing doctor. Wonderful. Well, I know your wife is a therapist. So at least you can say you've got someone who's broadly in the medical field. She's the family healer. (laughs) Well, look, you're trying to heal the earth, which is equally important. So Jeremy, I want to thank you sincerely for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I have so much admiration for you as a professional and for the work that you have done over the course of your career, even if you aren't necessarily directly healing bodies, you have certainly played a role in trying to make people's lives happier and healthier, both overseas and now in the Northwest part of our country. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Andrea. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.